Thanks for tuning in for Access Utah before we jump into our discussion today. Uh, unfinished business from a uh, broadcast from last week. We revisited our conversation from September of last year with University of Utah law professor Amos Giora. His book is The Crime of Complicity. He asks, if you're a bystander and witness a crime, should intervention to prevent that crime be a legal obligation or is moral responsibility enough? And he focuses on the Holocaust. Uh, he, he had uh, grandparents uh, who were affected by the Holocaust. Uh, he shares his experiences with his parents and grandparents. Uh, examines uh, uh, cases at Vanderbilt and Stanford and other crimes where bystanders chose not to intervene. And he uh, comes down the side that we must make obligation to intervene the law, thus non-intervention uh, crime. And uh, here's a response from Cecile. Uh, Cecile uh, says, regarding the legislating 911 law, while I find the scholar's premise admirable to help folks being victimized, my initial concerns and observations are the following. One, this sounds distressingly like trying to legislate morality. Should we all be better at helping those in need? Certainly. But should we be held legally responsible for not helping? I feel like this is a very big brother way of thinking, uh, possibly, that we could just focus uh, public discourse on caring for our fellow humans. Second, also, will the legislation indemnify the caller? And if the person committing the offense is later not convicted, can that person now sue in civil court the 911 caller? Cecile says, great opportunity for discussion. Thank you. That's from Cecile. You can keep that conversation coming to upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, we're going to revisit our conversation with Julie Corbett, Finding Nature in the Everyday, on today's program. This conversation also from September of last year. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Have you ever wondered about society's desire to cultivate the perfect lawn? Why we view some animals as good and some as bad, or even thought about the bits of nature inside everyday items, toothbrushes, cell phones, and coffee mugs? Well, in her new book, Out of the Woods, Seeing Nature in the Everyday, Julia Corbett examines nature in our lives with all of its ironies and contradictions, and uh, integrating personal narratives with morsels of science and research, each story delves into an overlooked aspect of our relationship with nature. Insects, garbage, backyards, noise, open doors, animals, and language, and how we cover our tracks. Julie Corbett is the author of two books and a professor in the Department of Communication and the Environmental Humanities Graduate Program at University of Utah. And her environmental nonfiction essay has been uh, published in venues such as Orion, High Country News, and Camus. And uh, she also served as a newspaper reporter, park ranger, naturalist, Natural Resources Information Officer, Deputy Press Secretary. She summers in the mountains of western Wyoming in her cabin, and I believe that's where we find her today. Julia Corbett, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. You are at your cabin, are you? I am, I am. Lucky me. Yeah. <laughs> Back so, and forth to Salt Lake these days. So. Yes, yeah, so summers, and you detailed uh, that whole experience in, in your book, uh, Seven Summers. I did, and I was happy to talk with you back then, too, uh, about the, that book. That's right. Remind us a little bit. You, th This is a dream you had, and you uh, you went out there with your power tools and constructed this cabin essentially by yourself? Uh, I had have a lot of help. You had help, okay. <laughs> um, but it was, I did much of the finish work myself, and it had been a lifelong dream, and I just jumped in with a whole lot of naivete. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, a modern-day homesteader, I think, is the is yes. part, of the, part yeah. of the subtitle of the book. Um, I want to mention that uh, Julia Corbett will be doing a reading and signing tomorrow, 7 p.m. at King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City. 
and uh, then at the Sublet County Library, Pinedale, Wyoming, uh, right. on the 13th, uh, up in Montana. And then uh, there's some uh, several activities in back in Utah in early October. October 3rd, uh, Downtown Salt Lake Library at the City Arts Series, Utah Humanities. October 4th at Snow College, on the 5th at Weller Bookworks in uh, Salt Lake City, Park City on October 8th, and uh, in Moab. Grand County Library on October 9th. So you can find all this at juliacorbett.net. Uh, Julia Corbett, you open uh, the book, your prologue. I want to quote this uh, sentence. People have been falling off cliffs, getting stuck in trees, and walking into traffic. <laughs> and and you say it isn't the zombie apocalypse, it's Pokemon Go. Right. Which I think uh, a lot of us are familiar with. For those who aren't, uh, tell us a little bit about this. Um, my first personal experience was when my nephews came to visit me, and uh, the older one in particular was very tied to this phone, and he was very excited because uh, you're going around your everyday life and um, different places and traveling, and your your phone on this app tells you that you're near one of these Pokemon monsters, and you then capture it. Um, and the sentence you read... They were saying, oh, it's great because it's getting people outside and so on, but people obviously weren't paying too much attention where they were going and having those kind of things. But the reason I began the prologue with that is it's curious to me how this app and many other cultural representations represent nature and what they think nature really is and where it is, um, which is kind of what prompted me to write this book of thinking, okay, how can we reimagine both the wild nature that we love to escape to on our weekends and so on, um, with this everyday nature that's all around us, uh, that we spend our most hours in, um, but somehow seem to not value as much. And if you're playing Pokemon Go, you're likely, you're in, you're out, you're, you're outdoors. Right, right. But there are some inside, I understand, but most of them are um, placed at different places outside. But it, but it's an overlay, right? And you're not right. really paying attention to the to the world around you, as, as evidenced by you know, people you know falling off cliffs and such. Uh, I want to quote this. Uh, you say, um, Pokemon Go is one of innumerable ways that culture colors our perceptions of what and where nature is. The ways are right. often peculiar and largely unquestioned. Uh, and, and you give uh, some examples there in, in the introduction. Some animals are good, some are bad, right. for example. Um, I do that exercise in my class, too, about animals, and I put up on um, two different blackboards, uh, one just labeled good and one labeled bad. And they are able to quickly and with relatively little disagreement put all sorts of animals on either one side or the other. And so I ask them, well, where did you get that kind of impression of what they are? How many of these animals did you actually have personal experience with? And so where they get most of these um, coloring is from our cultural influences, um, which are large. I mean, you can think of friends and family, entertainment, news, advertising, social media, um, politics, celebrities. I mean, all the places that we learn about things, um, and even the zoo. Um, so there you kind of hear kids talking about animals according to their Disney names. Uh, so that's an obvious influence of culture on how they're perceiving and thinking about um, those animals and nature. You have a whole chapter on um, on language. We'll get to that a little later. But but uh, in the prologue, you talk about, uh, you go to the dictionary, the definition of nature. Right. 
uh, which is a dictionary you say, a true product of human culture. I guess that's true. I hadn't thought about it that way, but uh, the way we it, talk, yeah. <laughs> the, <laughs> the way we talk about, the right. way we even define nature uh, affects right. how we interact with it. Right. We're not in the definition. It's looking at everything uh, that is separate from and beyond humans. Um, and I make the point, you know, we're breathing the same air as bees and butterflies and bears, um, we're using the same water, you really can't make those clear and neat uh, separations. Likewise, you can't make uh, separations between wilderness and even where you're sitting right now and the bits of nature that are all around you. Mm. Uh, It's all kind of one and the same. So I very much believe (laughs) um, in thinking of nature as totally involving humans. Now, we do think, I think a lot of us think, that we need to get out. Right. Right. We have to, we have to get out somewhere. We have to get out in the woods. We have to, and, and you say in, in the book that you're not immune to this. I'm not. And I think that's part of what uh, spurred me to write the book is I, as you mentioned, I'm up in my cabin in my office up here now, um, but hmm, I spend most of my year in Salt Lake City, a very big urban area, and I really tended to discount the nature where I was. And so it was kind of a challenge to myself to be able to see and value that nature there in a different way. Um, so I want to spend a little more time on how we, how we learn this, how we absorb this, that nature's out there and it's not here. Um, it, I mean, it's, there's a lot of ways that we, that we learned this. What, what are some of the ways you discovered? Um, I mean, it's, it's very hard to disentangle um, because, as I mentioned, all those sources of kind of cultural influence from Disney to politics or whatever. But um, even if you think of um, kids' books and how animals are presented there, um, let alone... Disney films, etc. So even kids at a very, very young age, are they already know kind of the good and the bad animals. Um, they, that backdrop of culture is very much um, affecting them from a very, very early age. Um, yeah. Uh, your, your first uh, essay uh, is, is about a bear. Right. Uh, this would be a good time <laughs> to jump in there. Out at your cabin, right? Uh, tell us the story of, of how you encountered this, this bear, and then we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, how about I just read a paragraph from that? That's great. Okay. The first of several bear visits was my very first morning at the cabin in May. My golden retriever, Maddie, woke to a sound and planted her paws on the bedroom windowsill. I put on my glasses. A young black bear pushed the last of the bird seed into a pile with her paws and lapped it up with a dark tongue. The feeder, which I had hung just 11 hours before rolled on the ground. What I learned in the summer of bears at my cabin is that all my black bear experiences, mostly cultural, followed me all the way up here. For starters, in childhood, Cinnamon, my beloved stuffed bear with a lullaby music box, Winnie the Pooh books, a favorite book, Blueberries for Sal, TV shows, and the fact that I was a bear we- badge-wearing Smoky Bear Junior Ranger. No matter if I see a bear up here in the woods, or one wanders into a suburban strip mall, which happened last year, I attach cultural meanings of bear. This is just as true for a backyard squirrel or a mouse, and it affects not only how close we can or want to get to animals, but also how close we can be. So that was 
kind of a, a revelation there that, hmm, I have all sorts of assumptions, culturally, most of them, about bears. I've been in contact with bears through all these little things in culture for a very long time. And then here's one um, who tears down my bird feeder. <laughs> um, and it really made me think about all of these cultural um, expectations we have and perceptions in, with bears, but with all sorts of other different animals mm. as well. This bear came up on your porch, I think, right? Uh... The second visit or third visit, yes. yeah. It was sadly one of those, um, they have that phrase, a fed bear is a dead bear. Um, once they get used to the easy pickings um, at cabins um, or even you know, garbage cans, um, they learn that it's easy to get food and it's hard to kind of retrain them. Mm-hmm. And so the, this bear learned because uh, she had been fed, <laughs> that you, right. can, you can go up to cabins, you can eat, right. the humans right. will so, stay inside and they won't bother you. Right. So it was, it was our fault, very much so, that this bear learned uh, to come close to humans because uh, most folks won't ever see a black bear in the wild. Um, they go about living their little bear lives very independent of us. Um, but we are the ones who cause this one to come back and to get into trouble. And you say, um, you know, there, there are only three solutions to a bear that's acclimated this way. Yep, yep. And unfortunately for this young female black bear, uh, she had already been relocated once. Um, and so the fact that she came back to the same area wasn't good news. And I never did, somebody asked me that at my last reading, I never did have the um, gumption to call Game and Fish and see if they knew what happened to her. Mm, yeah, yeah, you don't want to know, kind of. Right? I didn't want to know, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, the, you know, the, as you outlined these three solutions, I, I picked one, and I thought, oh, that that's the easiest one. So you could retrain the bear kind of hard. Right. Um, you could kill the bear, or right. you could or you could retrain the humans. And I right. thought, oh, we can retrain ourselves, but then you say, oh, <laughs> that's maybe the most difficult one. It, it was, and up here, um, and this kind of comes out, especially at the end of the chapter, um, Everybody loved the summer bears, and we kept saying, oh, you know, so-and-so saw a bear and so-and-so saw a bear, but it wasn't good news that we were all seeing this bear. Um, And even after, before the bear visit and after, um, managers and even um, neighbors here couldn't convince other neighbors to bring in bird food and to bring in uh, cat food or whatever outside. It was, training us was not... Um, effective. <laughs> uh, I want to read this sentence. You say, when mammals like black bears, foxes, coyotes, uh, deer, or others cross human boundaries, invisible to their eyes, of course, they're perceived as enigmatic wild creatures or as destructive intruders. And there's, right. That's very much the cultural overlay that we have, isn't it? Right. So that's kind of back to that two natures, that somehow uh, we have boundaries when it comes to our everyday nature, the nature right around our house, our houses and offices and whatnot, and thinking that animals need to stay on the other side of that boundary um, when they get too close or too dangerous or too costly or whatever. But, of course, for them, there are no boundaries. It's all just land and food. And I was struck by this. Uh, again, this is from the, uh, the essay called Living in a Circle of Beating Hearts. We're talking with Julia Corbett. Uh, her uh, collection is Out of the Woods, Seeing Nature in the Everyday. Um, you decry the disnification of a woods full of far more charismatic megafauna game animals 
Uh, you say, why depict a cartoonish mouse standing on two legs? This is the decor in, in uh, I don't know, your cabin or, or some of my own cabins. Or a dopey-looking bear holding the toilet paper. You say, really? And then you say, yet. I haul, haul home moose paddles, elk antlers, jawbones, feathers, etc. Yep. Um, I can't remember the author right off the top of my head. It's in the book. Um, said that we are species lonely. Um, that humans have a very natural and deep affinity for wild creatures. And we want to be close to them. Um, they are very much a part of our being human. Um, so at the same time that we need them, we somehow, and that was kind of the, um, what I discovered for me, I wanted to have little pieces of them around me. So I have right here in my office a little vase full of feathers that I found. Um, so that's my way of trying to um, have them near. Uh, many people do that with photographs. Um, and I think some of the, the cabin decor is perhaps another uh, way of trying to say, I want animals close to me. Let's take a break. When we come back more with Julia Corbett, her new book is a collection of essays, Out of the Woods, Seeing Nature in the Everyday. And uh, we'll uh, talk about this. She says her goals in the, in the book is to draw back the cultural curtain, see the Oz that orchestrates our view. Uh, the separates two natures, and and uh, she says, can I somehow learn to consider the urban and wilder nature as differently peopled versions of the same matter? We'll talk more following this break. Coal miners often say the work's about more than a job. I love coal mining. If I was able today, I'd, I'd be working in the mines. But black lung drastically changes their lives. The day you pick that dinner bucket up and go in the mines... That's the day you sign your death warrant. I'm Audie Cornish. Coal miners grapple with black lung and their futures. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Join us today from 3 to 6.30 with your host, Shalane Smith-Needham. Many of us are still processing the Kavanaugh hearings in the 2018 elections. We're absorbing the news and wondering where the Me Too movement is and where it's going. As a part of the UPR original series, Utah Women 2020, Utah Public Radio is hosting a town hall panel discussion titled Me Too Continues, Where Are We Post-Kavanaugh Post-Election? Join us Friday, January 25th at 6 p.m. in the Lundstrom Student Center on the USU campus. Come with your questions and comments and join the discussion. Details at upr.org. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we rock around the world with international rock and roll from Scandinavia, Latin America, North Africa, and beyond. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howarth. Pack your bags and join us for the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in September of last year. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. My guest for the hour is Julia Corbett. Her latest collection is Out of the Woods, Seeing Nature in the Everyday. Uh, so, Julia Corbett, um, you you write uh, in the in the book that this this separation is um, is detrimental to us. Uh, if we think that we are separate from uh, from nature, uh, and if we view uh, nature as uh, as we are, right, instead of at, as it is, that, that can cause problems. How do we break that down, then? How do we see nature as it is, not as we are? 
That's very hard um, because of those cultural influence we talked about. Um, I had my own perceptions of the bear before I saw the bear. Um, and it's hard to really kind of let down, uh, I was going to say your defenses. That's not it. I mean, it is true that we can only see through human lenses because we are human. But it doesn't mean that we have to confuse that with thinking that we're the only species. Um, and so I talk in various chapters a lot about making sure that we understand that we are the woven and interconnected with all of nature and that all flourishing is mutual. So I think it, it um, behooves us to make sure that we're seeing and understanding, oh, that to be healthy will make me healthier and so on, from ecosystems down to um, individual species. By the way, uh, Steve has emailed us. You can email us as well, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, your question or comment for Julia Corbett. We're on Twitter as well, at upraxcess, and you can call us to 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Uh, Steve has sent along uh, an article from NPR, the title, Grizzlies Have Recovered. Officials say now Montanans have to get along with them. And uh, I scroll down to a uh, highlighted quote. There's a resident uh, who says, there's a place for grizzlies, it's just not in my yard. Uh, so I guess there is some separation that needs to take place. Um, yes, um, and every species, uh, not just humans, uh, tries to live a long and safe and happy, happy life. So we're not the only ones who want uh, certain animals at least a safe distance, so we're physically safe. Um, and I think with many species, uh, our human attempts at management, control, et cetera, um, they're difficult, they're fraught, uh, they don't always um, result in good outcomes either for humans or for the animals. I wonder if uh, if we could go to, to Chapter 6, A Gardener Grows. Um, okay. This is, uh, for a lot of us, I think this is... I was going to say where the rubber meets the road. That's kind of artificial on artificial, right? But um, uh, but uh, this is an opportunity for a lot of us to to really appreciate uh, nature. But yep. there are some perils there. So uh, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about uh, you. You inherited this from your parents, right? Who were avid gardeners, at least your father. My dad, in particular, it was very relaxing and rewarding for him to come home from the office and spend time in his yard. Um, and I, throughout my life, have kind of gone the gamut of uh, being a very dedicated gardener, what I call a capital G gardener, um, to thinking it kind of drudgery and something that you have to do because of, frankly, the neighbors and so on. Um, but the reason I think that people's backyards are so important is that is the place where you have the chance to have very intimate relationships with other elements of nature, be they insects or birds or whatever. I mean, you get to see them through the seasons. You get to see their habits. You get to observe them. Um, and I think for many people, it's, it's a bit of a missed opportunity if the function or the, the purpose and the goal of what you do with your yard is all about um, kind of the, the cultural... Uh, perceptions of what a good yard looks like, um, which is often not a very good place for those other creatures um, to come to. 
you, uh, and I think we can all relate to this, a good yard tells you responsible, hardworking people live there. Uh, you're, you're keeping There's up with the Joneses. There's so much peer pressure around our yard. It's really kind of ridiculous. Um, it makes, I think, people who would otherwise not be interested in it um, have to spend a lot of, um, should I say, blood, sweat, and tears <laughs> um, on it. And also the chemicals. Oh, my goodness. Um, I found a fact that I put in that chapter that we now put more chemicals on yards than on all the agricultural lands in the country, which is rather phenomenal. And I know I was talking to one naturalist, um, uh, an ecologist, and he said that he wouldn't uh, even let children play on yards that had been treated. You know, we see those little yard signs now of just treated and so on. Um, And I read some other studies that even if you're not putting those chemicals on your lawn, you're tracking them into your house, and your pets are tracking them into your house. Um, And it's somehow what we think we need to do nowadays uh, Mm. to kind of keep up with the Joneses and so on. Um, It's a fascinating kind of cultural lens on what we think about the little patch of ground around our house. Now, your mom gave you a sweatshirt, apparently, with the words plant manager. Right. <laughs> is, I like that. In, in the sense of you manage plants, right? So right. The, 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 right. with flowers on it and such, uh, which you have, I guess, was emblematic. You kind of take this seriously. I wonder if you'd talk about your journey, which you which you uh, recount in this chapter, from um, uh, extreme tending, extreme management, right. to just right. letting it alone. What Michael Pollan, you quote Michael Pollan, calls an industrial lawn to the freedom lawn. Right. I guess, taking that to um, the garden. Right. Um, so when I was young, probably in my 20s and 30s, I, I rented a lot of houses, and I think I felt that cultural pressure, and even, you know, more so as a renter, you know, the stereotype of trashy yards uh, that renters have and so on. Um, but I also enjoyed it. I liked planting uh, bulbs and flowers and this and that, and I love entertaining, so I loved having people in my yard. Um, for barbecues and so on. Um, But since I moved around the country, uh, I did graduate school in Minnesota and then moved west, I somehow thought that I could just plant all the same flowers, you know, that thrived in uh, humid Minnesota. And I realized, wow, we even have an idea that here are certain plants that need to be in every lawn across the United States, regardless of habitat and temperature precipitation, and so on, and the idea that with enough um, water, chemicals, tending, etc., that you know, thus it shall be so, that I could do that. And I just got weary. And I think having um, my place up here um, contributed to that, uh, which I talk about in the chapter, um, because, yes, I have automatic sprinklers, and I go back and forth um, during the summer some to tend it, But it just became more and more of a chore. And the house I have now, I bought it in the winter, and I had no idea that the yard was just chock-o-block of uh, bindweed morning glory, which I think will survive nuclear war. It's just (laughs) impossible to get rid of. I think you're right. Um, Yeah. yeah, So I was reading Michael Pollan um, and his saying, you know, that having a bright green monoculture lawn is engaging in a Sisyphus uh, 
battle. So he's the guy, you know, who was condemned to roll the um, stone uphill and then it rolled back down and he had to start all over again. So he talked about this idea of a freedom lawn and that if you are not trying to attain a monoculture in your yard, if you let other things grow there, like clover is one that I have, and even a version of some yarrow, that your yard can be healthier. Uh, it's not going to be constantly fighting battles. Um, it will also, uh, with, with fungi or pests or whatever, um, that it can be healthier. But the key is how uh, culturally on your block <laughs> you are um, perceived. So I would even encourage people to talk with their neighbors and um, about the costs, the very real costs of uh, having such a tight, tight social norm around the bright green lawn in the desert. Yep. Yeah, it, it is very cultural. And as you say at the end of the chapter, there's much less stress and pressure in my life if my personal identity and patriotism are not tied to, to how my yard exactly. looks. But that's going to be affected by what your neighbors think, right, still. Right, right. Uh, are there limits? Would Would you let your lawn just go to bindweed? Uh, no, but... Uh, the bindweed is there regardless of what I do. Uh, so what I, I have so. been doing is um, uh, converting chunks of the grass to um, other um, less thirsty and native plants and shrubs. Um, and in the back of the yard, I'm trying to um, get some ground covers and some other plants going um, that really require a whole lot less um, tending, mowing, watering, etc. Um, so piece by piece every year I do that. I even poured a couple of new patios um, just to reduce the amount of water and, again, to have that nice space for entertaining. I wonder um, if we could apply this. You, you say go talk to your neighbors, uh, you know, try to convince them that uh, that, that we can have uh, freedom lawns. Uh, these norms perhaps could help in other areas. Um, I want to quote this from your prologue. Uh, my living large actions in everyday nature are pickaxes to the wilder nature. Uh, so there are you know, many actions that, that we do right. that uh, are not going to change unless the norms change, right? Yeah. Um, and that, I think, is a key um, theme, I guess, for the book, is that um, the two natures, that wild and the everyday, they're connected, and there's a lot of spillover between the two and that all nature, both that everyday <clears throat> and the wilder, deserves a whole lot more respect and gratitude than we have been giving it. Um, and that our actions in our everyday lives are what is consuming an incredible amount of the earth. Um, I did a little research and found um, how much uh, different metals, minerals, materials, et cetera, both my laptop and my phone have. And it's enormous. So I have bits of nature from all over the world um, that are in these products. But we're not valuing them in a way um, that I think we should. And I'm sure everybody's read about electronic waste and the, the lack of recycling <clears throat> of waste and so on and so forth. Um, but it's a real problem because we don't value uh, what my students call the dead nature, you know, the transformed nature that makes all the products in our houses. Um, if you want, I can read a couple paragraphs from the the granddaddy of all trash days. Yes, chapter. yes, great. Okay. Um, so, 
for anybody listening who's familiar with Salt Lake, although they say they're changing it this year, um, once a year um, there's a big, big trash pickup, and you pile everything at the curb. <laughs> um, so I talk about the pile that I've been watching. I've been watching this pile across the street grow, waiting for trash day. Not just any trash day, but the granddaddy of all trash days. Once a year in Salt Lake, crews pick up anything you stack at the curb. Well, almost anything, not hazardous waste, not tires, not batteries. Each neighborhood is assigned a week-long pickup slot sometime between April and September, and ours is next week. As the piles expand, cars compete for curbside space and maneuver past piles breaching into the street. I am a voyeur of these garbage piles on my daily dog walks. Unlike the waste hidden in bins and removed by a trio of trucks each week, this trash is piled in the street for the world to see. It's a fascinating window on what wears out its physical, or just desired, lifespan. But garbage reveals far more than what we discard. It tells us how we value the things that fill our homes and our lives that we use to relate to each other and to the world. It tells us how we value things of the earth. Rather than ignoring it, it's instructive to examine garbage more closely. Our culture's relationship with garbage is that it's the end point in a simple, linear process. Produce, consume, dispose. And hauling it away is the divorce, the final separation of these products from our lives. Except it's not. Not simple, not linear, not separation. When I stare at these trash mounds, what I see is life and energy and the richness of nature. I see priceless elements with countless possibilities for our living with the earth in a cycle of birth, death, and return. The time to think about garbage is long before we throw it out. Uh, so you talk about timing there, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of us don't think about it at all, you know, right. uh, early or, or late. Right. And an amazing fact is that 80% of the items in your trash were used once. Mm. So it's kind of what I call premeditated waste. So that's one place people could even start to look at their garbage. You know, whether you recycle or not, it's still a disposable product. And so the more you can limit those highly one-time-use disposable products, um, the better. One example, uh, at least I've been learning about, big push from National Geographic and others, uh, plastic bags. You know, used, right. Designed right. to be used once, right. ends up in the ocean a lot of times. Right. One thing I've been seeing more... Everywhere, parking lots, trails, are those little um, flossers with the plastic stick. (laughs) I don't know why, but I see those everywhere now. Um, And that's also one of those plastic and disposable items. And that's about convenience. I've used those before and because because it's very convenient. But then to think about where it ends up, right? Right, exactly. Uh, so is that a trade-off? We have to trade some convenience? What, uh, what, are, what are the trade-offs? What, what should we do? What can we do? Um, convenience is one of them. I think the other, um, I mean, much of this is not just individual responsibility, but from individuals on up. So as a society, um, I do um, try and stay away from totally blame the individual, blame the individual, um, because many of these solutions have to do what's in the marketplace and what's available, Um, even something like recyclable laptops. Um, That would be far preferable, but I don't have a whole lot of choice when I go to buy one. 
um, I know that it has a very, very short shelf life. Um, so I think responsibility lies in many different realms. We're talking with Julia Corbett. Her book is Out of the Woods, Seeing Nature in the Everyday. When we come back, I want to talk about noise pollution. You write, of all the kinds of pollution, noise pollution is perhaps the most culturally tolerated kind, but you outline uh, some harms from uh, noise pollution. Uh, I want to talk about language, and um, also want to talk about your attempts to educate a, a, a store owner about his open door, <laughs> which is, which is I, I love that chapter. Anyway, uh, more with Julie Corbett following this break. Johannes Brahms said he just didn't understand symphonies by Anton Bruckner, to which Bruckner replied, I have the exact same problem with yours. Coming up, the New York Philharmonic plays the gorgeous slow movement from the Symphony No. 8 by the often misunderstood Anton Bruckner on the next Performance Today from APM. Tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio. What does Utah Public Radio mean to you? You can answer that question by entering the annual UPR Art Mug Contest. We want to see your most creative interpretations and appreciations of UPR, our programming, or our station's home here in Utah. From now until Valentine's Day, we'll be accepting submissions, and then you'll all get to vote on your favorite design. The winner will be printed on this year's Spring Pledge Drive Mug. For more details, go to upr.org, and to submit, just send your designs to me, katie.swain at usu.edu. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, how does creativity happen? You know, there's the expression, we get ideas. We don't get ideas, we make ideas. So what does it take to make ideas? It is a constant struggle with a very clear feeling that I am out of gas every day. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Thursday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in September of 2018. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We've reached our last segment with Julia Corbett, author most recently of Out of the Woods, Seeing Nature in the Everyday. So, Julia Corbett, I want to talk about language. Um, And this is very important, as we said at the beginning, uh, even the definition of nature uh, separates it, right? We're, we're not in nature, according to the definition, if you look it up in the dictionary. Uh, I wonder if you tell me the, the story about the cuties. First of all, what, what were the cuties? <laughs> the cuties um, is a, a brand name, I guess, for a type of uh, mandarin orange. I was going to say tangerine, but I learned they're different. A mandarin orange. Um, and I was struck, I, I actually went and bought the bag for kind of a class exercise, but I was struck by um, the way they showed on the bag it kind of an animated uh, orange uh, with a zipper on it. And the way the advertising language um, made you think about and perceive the way it was grown and the value of it and that kind of thing. Uh, so, and... In- might be good to uh, could I have you read that this uh, page one twenty nine. Sure. Uh, you then you took a bag of these cuties to your class. Right. right. And it's interesting what what happened uh, there. So just the top of one twenty nine, and uh, I guess down to the middle of the page there. Well, I'll explain what I had them do a little bit, um, and then I'll read that. Um, so what I was trying. Well, I, I passed out the oranges. 
um, and I said, I want you to peel this and then eat it and use all of your five senses and to just put all of their focus on the orange and to use their senses, et cetera. And so uh, the first volunteer said, that was the most awkward thing I've ever done, and we laughed. And then a couple of the other comments were, I kept thinking about why the texture on its skin was wrinkly like that. I knew there had to be a good reason, but I didn't know what it was. <clears throat> Another person said, I was just amazed at all the juice and even the sound of it in my mouth. I don't know. I just never really noticed all the juice before. Another one. I kept thinking about all the interdependencies. Like, after I eat it, what will happen to that peel? Kind of like when I go hunting, I leave the innards, and I know that other animals will use it and benefit from it. So I wondered, is this fruit? If this fruit were growing in the wild, would animals eat the ones that fell? Another one. I kept looking at all the little membranes that I never really looked at before and wondering why they were there, like what they did. Another one. I don't think I've ever used all five senses when eating something. I probably won't look at an orange the same way again. And then the final one. Okay, this is going to sound strange, but it was like I was eating a living being. So in my mind... It was a successful exercise, not just because they relaxed, but they were mindfully eating and shifting their view of the Mandarin from an object, kind of a passive object, to a subject. Um, and thinking about those interdependencies with its environment and the interaction between the person and the fruit. And we talked about the advertising, right? Cuties, animation. Right. Um, right. That's going to encourage us to look at it as an object, I guess, uh, right. all the more to buy it. What are the benefits, then, of, uh, of this shift, seeing it as a subject? Um, that is a hard question to answer succinctly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I think back to the idea that uh, we are one species among many, um, not the other way around, um, that we are interdependent with these ecosystems and processes that sustain us, that make our life possible, and that the better we're able to and kind of get in the, uh, I'll put it in air quotes, mind of other beings, the more easy I think it is to understand what or who they are and what they need um, and what our interactions with them are like. You go on to say in this chapter, it's interesting to think about, um, in English, everything that's not us is it, right? It's not right. gendered. Other languages, um, there, there's different perceptions depending on what the, you give examples, um, you know, French and German and Spanish. Right, with the articles, right. Um, what page was that? I don't remember. Uh, that's just over the page here. Uh, that's the same page, uh, 129, oh, bottom of the page, yeah. Okay. Um, so I studied German when I was an undergraduate, um, and so it was der, D and das. And so when Germans were asked, asked to describe a key, which has a masculine article in German, they described it as hard, heavy, jagged, and serrated, uh, while speakers of Spanish, where key is feminine, described her as golden, intricate, lovely, shiny, and tiny. Um, and in a lot of native languages, um, they don't use it um, like we do. So in, in English, a human is a he or a she, but everything else is an it. Uh, and then in those other languages, they have other articles. And so it was interesting to find that for people who've studied these, there are effects of that and how we kind of it um, the other or give them characteristics based on 
whether we think they are a masculine um, object or a feminine one. Um, the other striking thing when I was learning about the Potawatomi language is that uh, 70% of their words are verbs. And in English, the opposite is true. So 70% of our words are nouns, and only 30% are verbs. So the way um, a lovely writer, Robin Wall Kemmerer, described it is that their language is all about things being, um, and English is more about our naming things. They are it. So even that, I mean, that's a powerful statement on language and how it treats the non-human. We don't tend to think about this. We're, a lot of times we're not even aware of this, how uh, these cultural constructs really right. do affect us, including right. language. Right. Uh, I want to get this in before we close, and we, we have about eight minutes left, but um, you cited some very uh, stark statistics to me. Um, but I'm included in this. Uh, you say a survey of about 15 years ago found that 51% of the American public spent no time outside in a normal day. Another 30% spent less than an hour outside right. each right. day. So that's 81% that's an hour or less outside. I wonder if you talk a little bit about what, uh, what science is telling us about just getting a little bit of nature, quote-unquote. We, we, we're describing this, right? You're in the book as you get out in your backyard or, or, right. you know, right. or out there. Um, anymore, when I have students preparing for a test, I tell them that the best thing they could do before that test is to go walk outside. Um, because there is just an increasing, increasing amount of research that says nature, even in tiny little bits, is very healthy for us. Um, <clears throat> it has a way of, of calming and uh, relaxing and whatnot um, us. Um, even just tiny, tiny bits of it. And I cite a famous study, it was in the early 80s, about patients who were recovering from gallbladder surgery in a hospital, and those whose window faced a tree recovered uh, faster and they required less pain medication than someone whose room looked at a parking lot or a building. So even just a tree, I mean, nature is powerful for us. And, and healing, and even small amounts of time in it, restores our brain function, our ability to pay attention, to perform various tasks, um, be creative, etc. Um, and the evidence just continues to pile up. So the fact that so few people are spending time outside is, is concerning. Um, and I, I've seen studies that also say that's just getting worse, not better, because of technology. So if you've had a bad day, if you want to just kind of clear yourself, put, leave your phone at home and just go take a walk outside. Um, and the, the point is that nature doesn't have to be, you know, devoid of humans or buildings or structures, but it's those areas that are not dominated by us and our structures um, that have that powerful healing effect. Um, a nearby woods or a park that is not just grass, um, or your backyard um, is a very healing place to be. And as you said, it doesn't take that much time. No, but it is kind of a, uh, I can't remember her name, she wrote a book called The Nature Fix. Um, it is kind of a dose response. Um, a view of a tree is good, but actually sitting at the base of it and looking at the sky, 
is probably a whole lot better. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Florence Williams is her name. Okay, uh, yeah. The, the Nature Fix. Um, I want to make sure we talk about the big hum. That's your chapter okay. on noise pollution. You you write, of all the kinds of pollution, noise pollution is perhaps the most culturally tolerated kind. Right. And uh, you say that a lot of people will say, oh, I've gotten used to it. Right. Um, I found a statistic in, that I put in the that chapter, that um, it's even the second most deadly uh, form of air pollution, Um, that it kills people. And the reason is your ears never turn off. So your eyes, you can close them. You can um, shut out the world that way, but your ears were designed to be on duty 24-7 and to alert you in a way that is important (laughs) Um, to things around you. And so, again, just a ton of research on how even chronic traffic noise um, is harmful to your health. Um, And I bet everybody remembers from school the old uh, fight, flight, or freeze response. Um, It's not something you can control. So when you hear a noise, it alerts your uh, physiology. So your heart rate increases, your breathing increases, um, it's not something you can just ignore. So we might acclimate to the noise and learn to, say, sleep through it, but your body physiologically never gets used to it. What about white noise? You talk about this in the chapter. You know, to some people, I've used this. Uh, right. When I used to work graveyard shift, I found a, a loud fan. Right. And that, that you know, was supposed to block out. I never did get the sleep mm-hmm. that I wanted uh, during that time during the day, but uh, at least I thought it helped me. So what about white noise? Right, and that I did a lot of reading on that, and the evidence is a bit mixed. Um, it's not clear, you know, white noise bad, but in some studies, it it was harmful, um, and in some not. And I also talked about my brother who uses a fan to sleep and has since I remember. Um, but the point I think is is a fan equalizes. Um, or any kind of white noise machine, um, equalizes, so it's just kind of a big hum. But your body physiologically is still reacting to that. It's still listening. It's trying hard to um, hear individual sounds in the big hum and tell your body if it's something that you need to be you know, concerned about, alert to, etc. Um, so your ears are still listening. And I think... Um, now, I, I read something recently how we're such a sleep-disturbed nation <laughs> um, that the darker and the quieter your bedroom is, the better you will sleep. just have a couple minutes left. Um, I made reference to, uh, I think this is the last chapter, Shut the Door, your, your confrontation with the owner of a, uh, of a, uh, a market that, right. that has the, those, uh, those air curtains and right. uh, you're saying that that's uh, very energy inefficient. Uh, we'll have, we'll refer people to the book because I want to uh, ask you just in the uh, one or two minutes left, uh, what's your, what's your takeaway? What'd you like people to take away from this discussion, from this book? Um, what I found um, is that confronting one individual about energy use, you know, being a, a neighbor, a customer, I mean, yes, say something if you see energy wasted, uh, et cetera. But the far larger thing is that I discovered is as a culture, we don't value energy. Um, It seems that really the only value that um, 
gives us much incentive or motivation is price. And energy oftentimes is pretty subsidized, and we don't pay, compared to many people in the world, uh, the same price. Um, And that it is a cultural thing. And as we shift from one kind of energy source to another, um, our values change. But I think we have grown so accustomed to having very affordable energy um, that we uh, feel rather free to waste it. And the title of that chapter, Shut the Door, I got from my father because I grew up, you know, Depression-era parents, um, hearing my father say, shut the door, we don't live in a barn. Um, (laughs) And the idea that you're not supposed to waste it. Um, But now open doors, open windows is very culturally accepted. The, the power of culture, uh, as we've been right. saying all, all hour. Oh, we are out of time. Uh, the book is Out of the Woods, Seeing Nature in the Everyday. Julia Corbett is the author. Julia Corbett, a pleasure as always. Thank you. Thank you. You're very welcome. It was happy to be here. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And Devour Utah, a monthly magazine devoted to covering Utah's dining and drink scene with a spotlight on cooking, local happenings, and libations. Available at newsstands or online at devourutah.co. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.